Welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Is your culture ready for machine and human collaboration? Artificial intelligence is disrupting the world we live in, and if it hasn't already, will transform your business. And it can be for the better if your culture is ready for it. Joining us on this episode of AI at Work is CEO of the Culture Institute Group, Carl Treacher. He has extensive experience delivering strategic advice to world-leading organisations on topics like culture and experience alignment. But what brings him here today is his work curating the first AI Culture Summit and his invaluable insights into organisational culture and its preparedness for the future. Welcome, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Marie. Great to be here. And hello again, Ben. Hi, Marie. Hi, Carl. Thank you for coming on the show. We're really interested in this topic, and I think there's a lot of people who will be very interested in it as well. So thank you for coming on. Not at all. I think everyone will be interested in this, particularly with um, the interface between AI and EI and the whole concept of developing technology but preserving humanity in that space. Where are we at with AI at the moment and what are the tools, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, that are currently transforming the way businesses operate? So I think you should ask that question of an actual AI expert. And right now, one of the fastest things or fastest growing professions in the world is being an AI expert. So whether you are or aren't, it's pretty hard to discern. But we're working at the moment with a couple, one in particular who's a former Chief Data Scientist of the Year, Matthew Cooperholtz. So I don't profess to know a great deal, but Professor Matt Cooperholtz does, and I spend enough time with him that some of it rubs off. Um, so I think in your, in your question, uh, where are we at and then what are the tools, two different sort of questions, I think we're at a very embryonic stage. You know, if it was a marketing campaign, we'd say we're in awareness and you know, we're trying to understand what does this look like? How do I become aware of this? What are the implications for me? And I think that's a big conversation in itself, which we'll probably come back to, um, the impact of becoming aware of AI and its, its possibility. Um, and the second thing in terms of the tools, I mean, ChatGPT and, you know, Microsoft's interpretation of that being Bing and, and Copilot through their programs uh, is probably most people's understanding of AI, but it's much broader than that, than that in terms of its other application outside of communication and marketing. Given that you say AI is in an embryonic stage right now, how seriously should people be taking it in their businesses? <laughs> well, each business is different and our, our clients and our network are addressing AI quite seriously. So the bigger end of town, the bigger banks and insurance firms are trying to learn as quickly as they can uh, about what it is. And so there's the, the typical learning journeys they're going on to the States and to Meta and the big you know, Silicon Valley and the tech houses to to get a handle on it. Um, and the, what I think they're trying to do, and I, I believe this to be the case is, there's two ways of looking at it. One is that the, you can do the same amount with fewer people, or you can do 10 times the amount with the same amount of people. So I really hope that they're looking at it. I know some of them are definitely looking through this lens of how do we optimize and grow? We're not looking to contract and reduce our field force, or our, sorry, our, our head numbers or FT or our personnel in general. That being the case, that itself is not widely understood. And even that decision as to are we going to do the same in, with smaller numbers or am I going to grow um, with the same amount of people, that's not widely communicated. So the implications of that through organisations is having a significant cultural impact. Could I ask, Carl, what's a couple of examples of day-to-day things that AI is doing in a business like a bank? 
Yeah, sure. I'll go to marketing because part of our organization is the Brand Institute. So we have the Culture Institute and Brand Institute. So we consult on brand quite often. And AI's had a big effect when it comes to marketing. So for instance, if you're using a tool called Jasper, in in the past when we were standing up a campaign, and Marie, you, you and I worked together several decades ago, there'd be a marketing mix. There'd be some advertising for awareness. PR would come in in terms of consideration and preference, and then loyalty would be more activational product-based um, value proposition. Uh, that would take a period of time. Now with Jasper, you can teach the, the machine or the AI what it is that you are trying to do, what the, well, you don't even need to actually come up with a strategy. It'll do it for you. But it will plan the campaign. When you're at that stage where you understand what, who your audience is and what you're trying to get from your audience and you teach that, teach the AI or machine, learn, and machine learning comes into play, it will then stand up a end-to-end campaign in 10 seconds that will do everything from 10 Twitter statements, 10 blog posts for you, your advertising campaign, your PR campaign, it's all there. And so mm-hmm. immediately the big question being humans are, am I redundant? Am I, have I been cancelled here? Um, and that's not really the case. To my point earlier that it's embryonic, it will move very quickly, but it still needs curation and that needs a human currently. So when you say curation, someone to look at that end-to-end campaign, polish it up a little bit and um, then make it say just that little bit more ready. Is that what you mean by that, Carl? Yeah, make sure that it's accurate. Make sure mm-hmm. that it's, it's – you can also train it to be in to tone of voice. I mean, ChatGPT is fascinating that you can ask it to write anything in, as Arnold Schwarzenegger or as Shakespeare <laughs> and it will do it instantaneously. However, the, it's, we know that the facts aren't necessarily 100%. Um, the combination of AI tools, I'm seeing a lot of that at the moment. I mean, personally, in our organisation, we'll use Bing for factual investigation and then we use ChatGPT to compose elements. And the whisper is, and I don't know that there's any truth to this, that some of the inaccuracies are becoming more prolific. So fact-checking needs to be, um, it, it will learn, and it will learn to fact-check itself, but at the moment um, that's certainly required. Ben, are people, are people scared at the moment of AI and the change it's going to bring, you think? I think there are a range of feelings around it, but I certainly think uncertainty is what people feel about it. And with that, some people are, are in the maybe so-called terror zone. They're really quite concerned about their job and their job security. And I think others are in the motivated, almost interested zone with it where they're literally starting to use chat GBT and other things like that on a fairly regular basis. I know in my organisation, for example, you know, we've had to come up with a few different policies lately, which I won't name, um, but, you know, jump into chat BT and ask it to write you a, a policy on modern slavery or on um, governance in business and, you know, uh, it gives you something pretty good. And to Carl's point before, I think you can then, um, polish it up a little bit. So, yeah, I think there are a range of feelings, but uncertainty generally creates anxiety, and I think there is anxiety. And the other thing we know about unpleasant feelings like anxious is that it narrows our perspective, limits our interpretation of events, and can cause us unintentionally, even unconsciously, to make assumptions. And I think a lot of people, Carl, have assumptions about AI particularly around job loss and things like that. And that and that's fueling itself a little bit at the moment. I don't think there's a good 
narrative around it at the moment that's, you know, calming the waters and or creating clarity, for want of a better word, for the general public. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The the cultural diagnostics that we use, we've got a tool called Panorama AI. So Panorama will talk uh, to cultural health of an organisation and also um, the type of type of culture that's um, pervasive in different departments. The, the worse end of town, so the more unhealthy the culture, the higher elements of anxiety and apathy typically from our diagnostic, and they're the organisations that we're seeing um, start to over-index on anxiety. Um, risk mitigation is central to AI. I think this is another really key point that we do have these not um, renegade revolutionary fanatics, but people that get excited about tech. And this is really exciting. This is the most exciting thing that's happened in technology ever, no doubt about it. Um, and, yeah, you hear, listen to the tech leaders of our time saying we've now entered the digital era for the first time. I believe that to be true. However, responsible AI and responsibility and accountability of what we're doing with it is inherent in AI and it's inherent in culture. Before any organisation does anything, the first thing they should be doing is looking at mitigating risk. What risks exist with us doing anything? is the first thing they should be doing. And that's there's going to be a bit of a war around that at the moment because the tech players are wanting to get their tools out in market and get them moving. Um, we just need to make sure that there are safeguards and guidelines and governance in place to ensure that the output or the effect of their AI tool isn't uh, detrimental to humanity. Carl, you mentioned that, okay, we're in this embryonic stage and everyone's trying to figure out the role of AI in their organisation. Um, but yet you also talk a lot about being culturally prepared before you adopt AI. How do you prepare for something that's unknown? Uh, look, well, parts of it are unknown. Um, parts of it are you can pretty readily forecast. So we know that and look, there's some great studies. MIT Sloan done a great study. BCG have done a good study. Microsoft have some really good insights. Um, they, they know that for it to work well and be integrated, adopted and integrated effectively, we have to see greater levels of collaboration. Silos are sort of the enemy of AI. You want to be able to share insight and then make sure that um, you're using AI, everything from insights, audience insight, for instance, if we've got a marketing hat on through to the customer experience, um, so collaboration and entrepreneurial collaborative culture orientation is really important and um, balanced with risk mitigation. And, and so there's enough to know that what won't work, I should say, you know, working in mm. silos, specific um, industries within organisations that deploy their own AI. And then you have uh, not AI wars, but certainly a, a rough interface between the two um, is not going not to yield the best results. So would it be fair to say that to be culturally ready, step one is to build better collaboration across your business? Yes, but I think also to Ben's point, uh, we need to start with psychological safety and trust. And so that the first step is for leaders to be able to stand up and mm. talk to what they're doing with AI, why they're, why they're doing that and how they're going to do it and the implications of that. I think all of those things are where we start. And also we're almost at a stage where they need to make assurances or deliver assurances that uh, no, we're not going to. You're not going to lose your job, and if you are going to lose your job, we're going to give you 12 months' notice. You know, is we're at that position very shortly, where there are going to be um, certain particular roles that are less necessary, if not redundant, and it's the way organisations handle that with care and empathy 
to that will really make the difference here. It, it won't be everyone, and we sort of know the bigger shareholder pressed organisations will have to make dramatic changes, but our work at Culture Institute is to make sure as much as we possibly can that they do that in an empathetic, humane manner. One of the things I know a lot of job searchers are doing is jumping into ChatGBT and asking it to write them a 1,500-word essay on the culture at so-and-so organisation as a way of starting or getting some insight on whether it's an, an organisation they should approach for employment, for example. Mm. You know, in the I mean, anyone can jump on Indeed and seek and look at uh, a lot of the reviews, so employees who are exiting right and, uh, yeah, apparently ChatGBT is pretty good at reviewing those for you and giving you a bit of a summation of the culture at X, Y and Z organisation, which I find pretty, pretty interesting. I think it's probably good until its, its database is only up until September 2021. Mm. So what's happened since then, who can tell? Uh, so it might it might just be a little bit dated in terms of the information that it's delivering, but in terms of its capability, 100%, that would be the first place to start. Why are we limited to 2001, Carl? What's going on there? I think when it was loaded, uh, when it was like lo- it's knowledge based. When I say loaded, I'm sure it's a wrong technical language, but I'm not a data scientist. But uh, yeah, we get I, that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it just they had a point in time that they needed to um, develop the front end, and so you sort of, they sort of had to go with a point in time of knowledge. Um, that's because it doesn't speak to the internet. You know, whereas Bing will access the internet for you and then compose. You know, Bing's Microsoft's version or integration of OpenAI ChatGPT with their platform. Um, So it is possible to do that, but just ChatGPT itself is much more um, adequate or appropriate for composing and um, copywriting. Have either of you seen any examples of um, businesses doing this really well, i.e. preparing their culture and speaking very openly about the impact of AI on their business? I'll talk firstly. My partner's an academic at one of the big 10 universities in the country and I think they've done a good job at least of talking with their lecturers who are managing undergraduates and postgraduate students about how students will be using AI to write essays and respond to various things in their studentship, for want of a better word. And I think that that training, as far as I can tell anecdotally from George's conversations with me, have been very useful to her, um, both from an understanding about how students will be using it and what can and can't be done there. And uh, that's about the only example I can think of, Carl. I can probably name a lot of organisations who I think aren't doing the psychological safety parts around it. So they know the anxiety is brewing. They're doing very little to create clarity, very little to dull that anxiety down, and certainly I don't think are readying aspects of their workforce that they know will be redundant in 6, 12, 18 months' time. They're not, I don't think, readying those people for that news. So I think, Carl, personally, that from a psychological safety perspective, that's the big opportunity for a lot of organisations is to create that clarity, talk about what um, can be done with it, give examples. I I don't hear many organisations doing that, but I'd be very interested in your view. 
Yeah, look, I've got a couple of things to say on that. So certainly um, the higher education sector, so we spend a lot of time with um, the big and big universities, the, um, you know, the big sandstone universities or uh, globally the more um, the tech universities. You know, we just did an interview recently with um, um, oh, with uh, with sorry, I'll just be some, one second. Just edit this part out while I remember who they are. Uh, with a, with Minerva, which is a fascinating uh, university, which takes uh, students from 130 different countries and they do their degrees across seven or 12 different countries in a three or four year period um, with no physical asset. Um, contrast that to a Melbourne, Sydney, or UQ, uh, very different. Um, and we've just ran a big conference actually with higher education to look at the university's accord. That was a government initiative to determine what has to be done at that at uh, in higher education to prepare for the skills gap that's coming. So, of course, AI was a central conversation, um, or I should say, should have been, but hasn't been. And that sort of leads to my second point, which is it it could be moving much quicker. So, why aren't the big organisations making statements? Well, they're not really doing a lot with it. I and mean, it's being integrated to some extent, but they're not making huge strategic com- um, decisions with this at the moment. However, they will. And when they do, it will accelerate faster than anything that we have seen before. So humans like to think in linear terms, one step after the other. And Matt Kuboltz, I mentioned him earlier from Deakin University, has a great expression where he says, if we took 30 steps from the start of the, the front of the lecture theatre, you'd be at the back of the lecture theatre, whereas 30 exponential steps, you'll be at the moon. And that's what we have trouble understanding, that when this starts accelerating, it will double up and compound and compound very, very quickly. And so the strategic implications to that, I've mentioned responsible AI, has to be central because when you let it go, it's like letting a balloon go. You're not going to get it back. It's going to be somewhere else. You're not going to have the arms and legs to actually get it because it will have its own, own sort of own course. I think that's why we're not seeing a lot of organisations making big statements at the moment about AI, but I know a lot of them are doing their preparatory work and they're doing their research and hunting high and low for great data scientists to help. What are the the risks of not having a culture that's ready for AI? There's There's a couple of ways to look at that. The first one is you're not going to compete. So AI is going to be an incredible performance um, tool. It's going to give those organisations that have a handle on it an amazing advantage over those that don't because they will literally be able to do 200 times the work of their competitors if they get it right. So there's a massive performance advantage. On the flip side, the implications of not getting it right, you'll just become very dysfunctional. So you may have pockets that perform, but overall the alignment through the organisation is going to be quite poor. Uh, and if you take, you know, to Ben's point around anxiety, if it's not done well culturally, and uh, look, I've got to say culture in Australia and most um, large organisations isn't great. You know, we do a lot of culture optimization work, which is understanding the base state we're at at the moment. And more often than not, it's a balanced, some neutral to negative healthy culture. You only need to look at one of the outputs of culture being um, employee engagement and, you know, Gallup will say it's 14% of, of Australian and New Zealand employees actively engaged. I think it's a little bit low. Culture app sort of say it's more like 65, 70. It's probably right. might be somewhere in the middle. Um, but if you don't get AI right, it's going to have a marked effect on your culture in a really detrimental manner. Um, and it'll be hard to come back from that because, as we know, with trust, you know, it arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. 
So by the time you've broken trust, how are we going to rebuild trust? If I've told you one thing and all of a sudden actually we're doing something different. I think at a micro level too, with trust, in some organisations at the moment that I see that some people have access to AI tools mm-hmm. and some people don't, and I think that's really a part, a part of the rub for people at the moment. I don't know, Carl, whether that's something you're also coming across. but Yeah, it's it's also a, um, I don't know the right expression, but it's, it's a bit of a phantom concept for a lot of organisations where they talk about it with great authority. And as I said earlier in this this interview, I, I'm not an authority. You know, I'm just someone who's trying to keep up and listen to those people who know, who legitimately know what they're talking about. Uh, people are using, talking about AI and <laughs> appearing on television and all sorts of fun things um, without really understanding what it is. So, yeah, the idea of what are we going to implement in a particular department or an area inside an organisation I think we're a long way from understanding what the most appropriate tools are or are we building our own tools um, for different parts of the organisation then how do you communicate the implications of that, their use, how to direct with them, who it's for. Um, there's a lot of planning that needs to be done and that's, that is going to take time and it's going to take human time. It sounds to me like um, working on an organisation's culture has always been important but Here's another reason why if a business hasn't taken it seriously, why it absolutely has to, to compete in the future. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the insights suggest that over 85% of most senior leaders, so C-suite, recognise that culture is a vital, critical component for their organisation. And when I talk about culture, I, I sort of help with that conversation because it's a fluffy concept and word that puts people to sleep. As soon as they realise that culture is, yeah, it's how we do things around here, that definition is so sleepy. So they need to reframe that, that on one hand you can say, yeah, it's how we do things around here. Well, that's easily dismissible. And then on the other hand you've got, you know, the grand godfather of um, culture, Edgar Schein, who passed away this year, who was a brilliant man, who said culture is about tacit assumptions. Now, but you've got best left to go to chat GPT to work out what he means. So we need to start thinking about culture as the expectations associated with being part of this community. And if that's the case, we very quickly find a bridge into hell. The culture that we have in this organisation is either going to enable our strategy to be successful or it's going to disable it. So we have to have some sort of benchmark understanding of our cultural health and our cultural style. For instance, if we're in innovation and growth mode, which most companies are right now, Every company should have a learning culture. The idea of having anything else is ridiculous. Um, well, there's a particular profile that indicates whether you have a learning culture or not. So you might be too high in risk aversion, uh, process, uh, command and control, authoritarianism. Any of those elements or stylistic um, components within a culture will be sand in the gearbox for innovation and growth. Yes, absolutely. I can't tell you how many organisations I come across that are saying, oh, we're, we're innovative and we're into growth and we're, um, and yet have a lot of the hallmarks of the things you just talked about there, Carl. Can I ask you about Australian corporate culture, which in comparison to mm-hmm. say, and you know, I, know, I know this is a very broad brush statement, say American corporate culture or British corporate culture, mm. are we at the front end of um, our understanding and our use of AI in business here, do you think, or are we a, a late adopter or are we somewhere in the middle? How is Australia tracking in terms of our um, use, understanding of AI? 
I'm not going to be an authority or very precise on, on my answer, but um, having worked in the States and having some American clients, they are generally a little bit further ahead uh, in terms of its adoption. I think they might be a little bit further behind in terms of authenticity um, for a variety of reasons. So we, we might be in a better position to adopt it uh, in with longevity in mind, um, but I think in terms of rapid adoption, and for rapid integration, uh, America's going to move a little bit quicker. I don't have any sort of visibility on the UK or other parts of the world. It's interesting you should say that. I think uh, Australia generally is doing pretty well on the psych safety front. I think mm-hmm. we're quite innovative in our legislation and in um, where we're up to in the journey of educating business about psychological safety and things. So I think on the authenticity part, my, my view would be we'd be a bit in front. But, uh, yeah, on the technology front, I, a little bit like you, but perhaps even more so, don't have a view. I, I really wouldn't be able to answer the question I asked you. To your point, I think we've done a great job uh, in terms of legislation, uh, you know, with identifying psychosocial hazards becoming not law but something that, you know, you become liable for is a massive step in the right direction. So we've taken what other people may have seen as a banal or or, um, um, irrelevant HR topic and brought it centrally into the mind of every leader in every organisation. Carl, you have a... um AI Culture Summit coming up sounds to me like a place where we may learn and Mm. find a lot of the answers and a lot of, you know, a lot of the answers to the questions we're discussing. Tell us a little bit about that. So we've been very fortunate in um, leveraging our network that we've had for a long time, be it um, Melbourne Business School. You know, we've got the Chief Innovation Officer, Nora Kozlowski, who interviewed um, Sam Altman, who's the founder from OpenAI. So she's joining me as a keynote at that event. Uh, Professor Matthew Kubolz, I've mentioned before, who's the Professor of Practice at Deakin um, Future of Business. Um, we have uh, Nat Peters, who's the HR Director, Asia Pacific of Microsoft. And so we've got these different angles coming together at this summit. Microsoft will, Nat will talk about Microsoft's um, new releases, what's happening. She's She unveiled at CultureCon, our former conference, Copilot. No one had seen it before. It was the Australian launch of what does Copilot look like. And for those that haven't don't know, um, Microsoft Word and other other parts of the 365 suite or whatever they call it actually have AI integrated into the product. So it will talk to you, much like the paperclip we used to in 25 years ago, if you can remember that, the, there'll be an AI uh, character or avatar helping you with your particular task. So um, at the AI Summit, the, the, the focus isn't just on AI, but it really is on how do we start preparing for AI culturally? What's, what does that look like? From our perspective, and we've got, we've got industry there as well, Judo Bank is a major sponsor. They're speaking. Uh, the HR director from Bunnings, Damien Zara, will be there. REA Group will be there. Um, so we've really got a great cohort of people coming together. From our perspective, we are trying to get a particular um, product and market for want of better expression, which is a very affordable way for organisations to understand their current state of AI readiness and their current state of AI risk. And so when they have that information, they can then make decisions much more easily and validate those. And the summit for us is about bringing people together to explore these topics, but not just a love in, actually, what can I take from this and then what can I implement really effectively 
and be a part of the be a part of the future, be ahead of the curve, and join the you know the AI assembly for want of better expression. Sounds like the sort of thing I'd like a ticket to, Carl. Where do we go? <laughs> What's the URL if we want to uh, have a look at the agenda and the speakers and, and sign up? So all of our products are at the Culture Institute. So if you Google Culture Institute of Australia, uh, which is cultureinstitute.com.au, you'll find all of our things. Under events, there's two, there'll be two options. One will be CultureCon, which is in Sydney, October 26, and the other is the Culture AI event in Melbourne and um, in South Bank on August 23. And there's a variety of other resources on that site that are actually quite good. We've got the Australian Workplace Culture Guidelines that are free to download for everyone, which is a set of 16 guidelines to help HR and people leaders understand what um, cultivating culture looks like. Sounds fantastic. In my world, Carl, uh, a lot of people grab onto headlines like this. The rise of AI will make EI even more important that emotional intelligence is the new IQ of uh, the digital age and so on, that in other words, that people skills are going to become much, much more prized, if you like, as the valuable thing to have as an employee. Do you have a point of view on that? Do you see uh, that connection or do you, am I reading the kind of fluff that uh, a lot of people in my world tend to wrap around this stuff? What is, <laughs> what's your view on it? I might be one of those people. So firstly, I really <laughs> I really hope that that's the case. Uh, do I think it is the case? I, I also do believe it's the case. I think there's a there's two elements here. One, we've got a, there's a global shortage, but certainly in Australia, a shortage of data scientists, like validated data scientists. So Microsoft has an, has an academy. They're putting 5,000 people through as quickly as they can every so often um, to be able to be understand the data requirements. And the second part is the people piece. We've and I don't want to speak too derogatively about leaders because I think there are some tremendous leaders in Australia, but there's also some really terrible leaders in Australia that have got by, that have been um, recruited because of their experience and their capability and not their attitude and ability to become a, to be an effective cultural leader. So I think that will change. I think we are now, culture itself, if there's a recent um, report that came out from global search firm Hydric and Struggles just recently, it might have been yesterday, the day before, that talked about the ex, ex escalation of uh, of culture in the boardrooms across the US and the world where we are seeing culture becoming a much more common topic. And when we are talking about culture, we're talking about people and we're talking about cultural leadership of people. And so central to that, from my perspective, anyway, I'm sure yours as well, it is empathy and AI that we don't see great leadership, particularly in the future age, for those who don't have a contemplative mind, those that are more sort of command and control or come out of a charismatic, um, myopic perspective are generally not going to be the effective leaders in the future. Yeah, I think Cap Gemini did a research study on this stuff not long ago, thinking that demand for EI will grow sixfold over the next three years, that sort of nonlinear effect that you're talking about. And I think certainly, you know, I keep thinking, you know, is emotional intelligence one of those topics that's sort of going to boil off, if you like? And, um, well, we're approaching uh, the third decade of it, and I think it's more popular than ever at the moment. I thought that too. I remember buying Daniel Goldman's mm-hmm. book 20 years ago. I think that's the one, isn't it? That's the, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And thinking. Yeah, okay, or longer even. So, and and thinking, well, this is such brilliant work. I hope this is becomes a 
you know, a tenant, a standing item for all leaders. And um, I, I don't know that it has for a variety of reasons, market pressures, shareholder return, squeezing bits and pieces out of um, organisations. But I, I do think that the tide's turned on that, that this will be really central to, to leadership moving forward. Absolutely. Fascinating. Uses in the medical world, I think, are very interesting. Carl, I don't know if you've been sort of following along in that space, but having uh, machine-led learning and, and artificial intelligence helping doctors make diagnoses, I think, is a very interesting uh, mm. use of the technology. Do we mm. see a cure for cancer and things coming along the, along the line, <laughs> do you think? We're asking the big questions of Carl today. Carl, your medical expertise, please. So I'm an associate professor of social science, which means I'm qualified to commentate on precisely nothing. So, <laughs> uh, but but what I can do is uh, share some of the conversations that I've listened to. And so Sam Altman, the the founder of AI, very openly says we are, artificial intelligence will find the cure to most things. Climate change is one that he says. Now I'm hardwired into that with, for a variety of reasons um, personally, and I'd love to see something of a carbon solution be proposed because there's nothing that's been successful so far. But, yes, um, are we going to find uh, expedite cures? And uh, there's no doubt about that. Mm. There's no doubt that, that, that the timelines of typical pharmaceutical trials, for instance, and whilst we are trialling them on humans, anything that's non-human will, be, will happen much quicker. Carl, as a vegan and an environmentalist and a very passionate one at that, what do you think the impact of AI is going to be on the environment? Because no doubt it needs a lot of power, right? It's an, it's an excellent question, Marie, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people are asking. So for commentators to ask that question shows um, really an astute mind. So firstly, thanks for asking. The, the answer to that, though, I think there's positive and negatives for each, and I'm coming straight to you from ChatGPT's response. So the positive impacts, it's going to be efficient. Uh, it's going to be better for resource management. So there's probably going to be a positive environmental impact because it will be a, provide an economy of scale solution for a lot of things at the moment we're doubling up on because it will be able to identify redundancy incredibly well and quickly. Um, energy consumption, to your point, though, so running powerful AI models, according to ChatGPT, requires significant computational resources leading to substantial energy consumption. For instance, for instance, sorry, training a large AI model can emit as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. So that's just one of the negative impacts, and I don't think that is being discussed, and it should be discussed. So thanks again for asking. One of the other potential applications of it, of course, is helping people be people, um, and perhaps you know, from a cultural point of view, helping the left and the right come together a little bit more uh, around partisan political topics. I mean, which one isn't partisan these days? I think that's a fascinating area, isn't it, where the machines are also helping us you know, um, get perspective, create a shared understanding, common point of view around things. I mean, this is important cultural aspects of, of any business, right? Yeah, and, and look, more so in the US than here. Um, but, of course, being the left-leaning vegan that I am, now you can't teach Republicans to care. <laughs> Mega Republicans at least, I would agree. Thank you so much for coming on, Carl. Honestly, it's been such a 
interesting chat. Every chat with you was an interesting one. Um, the AI summit sounds incredible and definitely sounds like something any people leader should attend. Um, we'll be sharing the links in the podcast notes and on the website. Um, thank you again for coming. No, thanks so much for having me, Ben. Marie's been terrific. All the best. Thank you.